Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. A monk is like a house pet, helpless, on his own, absolutely and vulnerably dependent on the kind hand that feeds him, but at the same time of therapeutic value to that kind hand, not to mention cute as a kitten in his fluffy robes and under his bald head. Like house pets, bhikkhus live simple lives, need and possess little. They do not have a motorboat on the lake, nor a puppy they are trying to put through college. Monastics are also deliberately renunciates, which means that their lifestyle leaves almost no channels for the pursuit of sensual pleasures or accumulation of stuff, nor for the intractable issues that accompany these. The effect is that we settle into a stage of quiet contentment, not of struggling with the world on the other side of the looking glass, not compelled, as the laity is, for financial or familial reasons to struggle in that world. At the same time, the presence of monastics moderates, by example, the excesses of the laity, makes teachings and pastoral care readily available, and incurs less expense than the support of the clergy of virtually any other religious tradition. Accepting the generosity of the lay graciously, having no resources at all of one's own, that are not donated, puts the monastic in an uncommon frame of reference, but also does the same for the lay donor. Remarkably, every time the monastic accepts something, the lay donor receives a gift. This is paradoxical to the Western observer, but if you look again, you cannot mistake the sugar plums dancing in the donor's eyes every time the layperson accepts a teaching or benefits from a social or pastoral service, the monastic receives a gift. The relationship is unlike what one finds in conventional human affairs. This is the economy of gifts that provides much of the context of the most fundamental Buddhist value and practice that of dana. The bhikkhu traditionally has four requisites that substantially form the material world of the monks. These are robes, food, housing, and medicine, each of which offers a perspective on the monks' experience and lifestyle. The contract between monastic and laity requires the monastic to be clearly identifiable much as police soldiers or sales staff. Monks are never to dress like laypeople. History has made the Theravada bhikkhu's robes archaic. Generally, two robes are worn. The upper robe is about the size and shape of a queen bed sheet, and the lower robe about half that size to be worn below the waist. 
In Myanmar, both are commonly burgundy in color. The less often used outer robe, the size of the upper robe but twice as thick, supplements the others only in cold weather. The lower robe wraps around like a skirt with a large pleat folded in to permit walking and other necessary leg motions that may be required. It is simply rolled at the top, then a belt is tied around for security from embarrassment. The upper robe is quite versatile. It can easily become a blanket, a hood, a curtain, a sunscreen. In its primary function as clothing, it proves no less versatile, providing a variety of options to ensure fashionable attire for any occasion. For instance, in informal context, the bhikkhu positions the top of the robe over the left shoulder and under the right, throws the right corner over the left shoulder and folds the left edge over the left shoulder, leaving the right shoulder bare. This turns the previously topless bhikkhu into the casual fellow about the monastery, often found lounging under a mango tree, meditating in the shrine room, or receiving homage from a devout family on uposatha days. Alternately, the exact same robe provides attire for formal occasions, which means, according to Winia, whenever the monk is in town outside of the monastery, certainly when visiting families or on alms round. The basic principle of the formal robe is painstakingly to construct a sleeve for the left arm. Miraculously, the leftover material drapes smoothly and evenly over the rest of the body, covering both shoulders. I'll describe the Burmese variant of this technique, which gives a stylish ruffled neckline. Remember turtlenecks? The tie is a bit different, and the sensible Sri Lankans are barely on talking terms with the formal robe. In any case, the proper folding of the upper robe transfers the bhikkhu into the elegant monk about town, ready for such eventualities as meeting dignitaries, collecting alms, or, dare I suggest, the opera. Now, to construct the sleeve, the bhikkhu makes two seams, consuming thereby three of the four edges of the robe material. A couple of zippers would make this easy, but no, that would be beyond the state of ancient fastener resources. Instead, the bhikkhu forms a seam by rolling two edges together. To understand this principle, you may experiment with your bedsheet. Go ahead, take one off your bed. Now try to make a sleeping tube by rolling two opposing edges together. It doesn't exactly work, does it? However, in a remarkable piece of ancient engineering rivaling that of the modern uh, zipper, some monk or nun discovered that if you cinch the rolled edges at certain points and create lateral tension the edges do not come unrolled, at least not so quickly. In this case, the cinch points are the left elbow and under the left arm. This effectively immobilizes the left arm except for a claw-like hand. Also, one wrong move 
causes the long seam to unravel, as I discovered on a very early alms round at Pauktoya, much to the delight of a meticulously attired twelve-year-old novice who rushed to my aid. The rest of the garment drapes nicely. The bhikkhu's head pops out through one end of the first seam, providing the monk with the capability to see where he's going as well as to be recognized by others. The second seam extends from the hand up the left arm, cinches in the back, under the arm, then continues over the left shoulder and down the front to below the knees, but in theory permitting the right hand to communicate with the outer world at about waist level by untwisting the seam should the right hand be needed, for instance, to open a door or receive a filtered juice drink. If the right hand is needed for an extended period, for instance, to sit at a table to eat a meal, then the elbow can be tactically placed before the seam snaps shut. Now, the formally attired bhikkhu is quite the dapper fellow indeed, ready for many formal occasions. However, lest this go to the bhikkhu's head, let me point out that the robe is best warm in situations where no fun is involved, for the robe has a way of enforcing the practice of disenchantment with sensual pleasures. For instance, consider ballroom dancing. In this situation, if the bhikkhu, in his excitement, lifts the left arm even slightly, the next dance steps, one, two, three, one, two, three, will likely waltz the bhikkhu right out of the better part of his clothing and also create a situation of burgundy entanglement for others on the dance floor. When the Buddha returned to visit his princely home after his alms-financed awakening, he continued his rounds in the streets of Kapalawattu, much to the distress of his aristocratic father. The alms round was for the bhikkhu a key feature of the monastic life. Even when food was close at hand, the alms round was not to be disregarded. He once criticized one of his disciples, an arahant no less, who developed the habit of meditating for seven days at a time without food for neglecting his daily alms round. For the Buddha, the alms round was not simply a way to feed the monks and nuns. It had a social role to play in realigning the values of both monastic and lay. The Pali word for alms round is pindapata, which means literally drop a lump and describes the process whereby food accumulates in the alms bowl. The tradition is that monks or nuns leave the monastery or wherever they are dwelling, most ideally at the root of a tree or in a cemetery, either singly or in a group. As a group, they typically walk single file according to seniority, that is, according to ordination date. The robes are arranged formally, covering both shoulders as described earlier. The monks walk barefooted into a village and then from house to house, not favoring rich 
nor poor neighborhoods, accepting but not requesting what is freely donated, that is, dropped as a lump into one's bowl. Everything dropped into the bowl, according to the most ancient tradition, is simply mixed together, since monks are asked not to favor one food over another, and by extension should not favor one blend of foods over another. Their stomachs will just blend them in any case. Carrying the ancient tradition into the modern context can result in some rather unique blends. For instance, curry and cake, pretzels and tofu, tomato sauce and noodles. It is fun to speculate how much of today's cuisine may have first arisen as a chance combination in the primordial ooze at the bottom of some ancient monk's alms bowl. There are a lot of rules for monks around eating. Foods must be offered by hand from a layperson, though a monk who has received food can thereafter share or trade offerings with other monks. Most foods must be consumed by noon the day they are offered, so cannot be saved for a snack or for the next day's meal, a rule that clearly enhances the vulnerability of the monk. Filtered fruit juices may be offered and consumed after noon until dawn the next day. Tonics, which are sugar, molasses, honey butter, oil, and a couple of other things that characteristically no one would mindlessly sit around snacking on in large quantity, may be consumed at any time by the hungry monk desirous of not fainting for hunger and may be saved up to seven days after being offered. Monastics are specifically instructed not to endear themselves to the laity with the intention of improving their intake during alms rounds, not to ask for anything directly, and to receive without establishing eye contact. Accordingly, they, by convention, do not express thanks for donations received. This ritualized behavior can be seen daily in virtually any village or city in Myanmar. The point of alms round is not just to feed the monks and nuns, nor just to offer the joy of generosity. It is also to bring monastics into daily contact with lay folks so that the latter will have the opportunity to learn Dhamma from the former not only from the example of their dignified, quiet, and mindful presence, but at laity request from actual words of inspiration or instruction. Accordingly, some monks will simply pass silently from house to house to receive offerings, while others will speak with the lay folks and invite questions concerning Dhamma, or will simply make a habit of offering a short discourse at each house. In Yangon, Ashin Panyasiha, which means Lion of Wisdom, would generally leave the Sidigu Center each day around 9 a.m. to go on alms round. He would offer what he had collected an hour and a half later to the Sidigu 
kitchen, where meals are prepared to obviate the necessity of such alms round for the other monks so that they may have sufficient time for their studies. Ashin Panyasiha did this because this is what the Buddha wanted monks and nuns to do, and because it gave him the opportunity to teach at the houses he visited upon request. He was a teacher, in fact, an exceptionally gifted and popular teacher. Shortly after my arrival at the Sidigu Center in Yangon, Ashin Panyasiha asked me if I would like to go with him for alms. So we began going together in formal robes, single file, silently, mindfully, alms bowls slung over our shoulders, held in front but concealed under our robes, eyes fixed on the road before our feet, never glancing around over Bailey Bridge, down some stairs past a small Burmese version of a strip mall about five tiny abutting shops, across another busy road and into a small neighborhood with many closely packed dwellings squeezed in on muddy alleys trafficked by bicycles, feet, and chickens, and beslumbered by lazy mongrels. Ashin Panyasihai had been following the same route in this neighborhood, visiting the same families each day. In Sagaing, a monk would receive offerings from every house he passed. In the big city, he would learn which families were prepared to offer and which were not. Ashin Panyasiha had developed an intimate relationship with some particularly devout families, most of whom liked to learn a bit of Dhamma each morning. I quickly came to appreciate the alms round. It makes a wonderfully formal mindfulness practice as the monk walks silently with lowered eyes from house to house. It gives the monk an intimate connection to the lives of the laity and the laity a similar connection to that of the monk presumably just as the Buddha intended. This keeps the monk from disappearing entirely into a monastic bubble, or rather lets the laity come in to share it. The laity exhibit an awe-like respect for the monks, and yet at the same time an affectionate familiarity. I know of no counterpart for this blend in my own culture. I appreciated the opportunity to see how People live, generally very poor by any American standard. Houses are, for the most part, leaky shacks almost on top of each other with plank walls and light visible between the planks. Intermittent electric power passing through funky wires. At the same time, there was no sense of deprivation. They lived with a sense of dignity and an intimacy with their neighbors. Every act of generosity toward monks reminded them that they have wealth to share. Most of the families had cats, sometimes several, living inside, dogs relegated to the no-man's land of the streets. One family had two pet rabbits, a white one and a brown one, which they had named Obama. The bowl itself is the symbol of the monk. The bowl in Theravada lands is far larger than most appetites, but this allows it to serve as a kind of suitcase for mendicant forest monk's stuff. 
or to be used to collect alms for more than one monk, for instance, for a sick monk. The bowl has a strap which is slung over the right shoulder to carry the weight of the bowl when walking, and a lid. The lid was added sometime after the Buddha. I can imagine two scenarios that might have motivated this originally, both involving birds.